1975, sorry, at the age of 45, Coleman Mockler became the CEO of the Gillette Company. Uh, it's a company, if you aren't familiar, specializing in men's razors and other personal care products. I actually wouldn't know because I can't grow a beard. It's just what they tell me. Fast forward 16 years. Under Mockler's leadership, Gillette was reaching heights that it had never experienced before. Business was being revolutionized. Company stock values were increasing 50-fold. Gillette, for all intents and purposes, was dominating their industry. And in large part, the success was because of their CEO, Coleman Mockler. Mockler quickly became known and is still known today as the model of an effective CEO. And by 1991, he was powerful. He was influential. He was rich. Achievement and accolades seemed to follow him everywhere he went. In fact, he was so influential that Forbes magazine thought that it was a good idea to put him on the cover of its February issue in 1991. There it is. You see, a week before this magazine was supposed to hit newsstands, uh, Mockler uh, was sent an advanced copy. Uh, so it shows up at his office, uh, executives gather, uh, giving Mockler uh, a standing ovation, celebrating all of his accomplishments, celebrating him being published on this magazine. Finally, after a while, Mockler goes back to his office, gets to his office, opens the door, goes in, starts to head to his desk, but he never makes it. He never makes it because seconds after the door closed behind him, he collapsed and died from a massive heart attack. As the story goes, when his colleagues eventually found him, he was still grasping, still holding on to that magazine. You see, here's a man at the peak of his professional career. Some say he was at the peak of his personal life. Wealthy, powerful, influential, successful. He had finally arrived. But now at 61, it was all gone. You see, I'll be honest, I, I don't really know anything about Coleman Mockler. I don't know the kind of man he was. I, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. But as I was reading this story about him, I, I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if Coleman Mockler was satisfied with his success. I wonder if, if Coleman Mockler was, was happy with how he lived his life. Maybe he was. But maybe he wasn't. You see, I wonder if he had any regrets. I wonder if he has anything he wishes that he would have done differently. I wonder if he was alive to tell us if he would like the legacy that he left behind. If that was something that he wanted to be remembered for. You see, we all have hopes and dreams. We all have an image of the kind of people that we want to be. The kind of life that we want to live. And maybe in a room this big, the specifics of those dreams vary from person to person. You see, but I bet there's at least one thing that everyone in this room shares in common. Something to one degree or another that we all want to be true of us at the end of our lives. And that's this. Every single one of us wants to be successful in life. To one degree or another, one way or another, we all want success. You see, nobody sets their hopes and dreams on failing. 
Nobody makes it their goal in life to fail. Nobody wants to be remembered as a failure. Of course that's not what we want. We want to be successful. But what does it mean to be successful? If I asked you to take out a piece of paper and a pen right now and in a few sentences write out what you think success in life is, what would you say? What would you say to that question? I was curious. So this week, I, I actually emailed about 40 of you that exact question. I'm going to put everybody's answers. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, but as you can imagine, I, I, I got all sorts of different answers to that question. What is a successful life? What is success? Some of you said that your life would be successful if you made some sort of big impact on the world. Others said, no, it's not so much about having a big impact on the world. Rather, success for me is tied to the influence that I have in the lives of people around me. Some of you, I think quite honestly, said your life would be successful if you achieved the stereotypical American dream. If you had a nice house, great job, beautiful family, cool car. Others talked about success as living a life full of love and purpose. Some of you said that life, not life, success, success is relative. So in other words, at the end of your life, if you feel like your life was successful, well, then it was. And by far the most common response was that your life would be successful if people respected you. If at the end of your life, people admired you, if people wanted something about you, about your life. You see, it's obvious from the responses, and, and no surprise at all, at least to me, that there's a wide range of ideas that we have about what success is. And that's because our culture, our classes, our media, art, entertainment, our friends, other people, they're all shaping what we think about success. They're all giving us ideas about what a successful life really is. Hear me when I say this. The problem isn't that we want to be successful. That's not the problem. You shouldn't feel guilty for wanting to be a good student. You're not wrong for wanting to be involved on campus. It's not bad to seek out leadership positions in Greek life. It's not wrong for you to want and to have a desire to be known, to have healthy and thriving friendships, and to want more. Those things aren't wrong. The problem isn't our desire that we have for success. The problem is that our definition of success is often wrong. What does the Bible have to say about success? What does God have to say about what success is and about how we live life well? Well, in short, the Bible tells us that if we want success in life, there's something we need. If we want success in life, we need to grow in wisdom. And so tonight, we're starting a new talk series. For the rest of the semester, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Proverbs together. Why Proverbs? Well, like all of the Bible, we believe that the book of Proverbs is God's word. And specifically, the book of Proverbs is classified as what we would say wisdom literature. 
And it's an invitation by God for us to learn from previous generations how to live well in this world that God has made. You see, if we want success in life, then we need God's wisdom. That's exactly what Proverbs gives us. What is a proverb? A proverb is a short, clever little saying that conveys some sort of wisdom. Proverbs aren't meant to say everything about everything. Rather, they give us pictures. They give us small vignettes to, to help us lean into the world, to help us live well in God's world. And remember, we need to learn to live well in this world because God has called people in every place and every time to make life better for people around us, both for their sake and ours. The book of Proverbs helps us do that. So, a few introductory matters. Who wrote Proverbs? Proverbs 1.1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. See, not everything in the book of Proverbs is written by Solomon, but he's most certainly the chief author. Maybe you remember from the Old Testament book of First Kings, that early on in Solomon's reign as king in Israel, Solomon asked God, he prays to God that God would give him wisdom to lead God's people well. He, he asked God, he prays to God, he says, God, give me the wisdom to discern between right and wrong, between good and evil. And later in the story, we, we learn that God is pleased with Solomon's prayer. It delights him. And so God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 3.12, he says, I will do, Solomon, what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And a chapter later in 1 Kings 4, we see God's promises come true. Solomon, we're told, becomes the wisest man in the ancient world. His wisdom and understanding is as measureless as the sand on a seashore. He writes thousands of proverbs and songs. We're told he has extensive knowledge of plants, botany, the natural world, of birds, animals, reptiles, fish. People from all over the world, people from vastly different cultures come to hear Solomon's wisdom. And that's because the wisdom that God gave Solomon was unmatched. It was unrivaled. But what is wisdom? What is wisdom? See, I need to make an important distinction here, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But, but biblical wisdom is different than knowledge. It certainly includes knowledge, but biblical wisdom is more than just our intellect. It's about more than simply growing in our intelligence. You see, the word wisdom in the Old Testament, it's a word that means skill. Or applied knowledge. And so that's why when we talk about Proverbs as wisdom literature, we're talking about more than the knowledge of facts. See, a better way to think about the book of Proverbs is this. Proverbs is a book designed to teach God's people the skill of godly living. The skill of living well in the world. And because growing in wisdom, because growing in biblical wisdom is a skill that we need to cultivate, the book of Proverbs is seriously practical. Now, quick, quick story. Uh, I remember before Noelle and I had our first kiddo, Lily, and, and I remember reading a, a book on parenting. 
right? I, I kind of did it begrudgingly at her request. But after reading the book, I, I kind of thought, you know, maybe because I'm a dude, okay, I got a handle on this parenting thing. I know how to be a parent, right? But there's a huge difference between the knowledge that you get from reading about something compared to the knowledge that you get from actually doing it. You see, the purpose of Proverbs is to give us biblical wisdom to help us to grow in the latter. Skill in the art of godly living, not simply godly knowing. And so that's why for the next several weeks, we're going to use the book of Proverbs to talk about all sorts of pragmatic issues that are relevant to our lives. Friendship, work, our character, who we are, how we make decisions, how to find contentment, self-discipline, how to use our words, etc. You see, Proverbs is full of wisdom in each of these areas, and collectively, it gives us a roadmap in how to live well. In short, it gives us the wisdom that we need to live successful lives. And so for the rest of our time tonight, this is what I want to do. I want to look at what Proverbs has to say about success by asking three questions. Three questions that I want to ask and focus on for the rest of the night. Here they are. First, where does a successful life begin? Second, how do we live well? How do we live life successfully? And third, what's the goal of living this way? Where does it begin? How do we live well? And what's the goal of living this way? First question. According to Proverbs, where does a successful life begin? Well, Proverbs says that it begins with a right relationship with God. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 28.14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Notice that repeated phrase, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Um, I was recently reminded of a video that every time I see it, I, I can't help but think about that phrase, the fear of the Lord. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's a few years old, but maybe you haven't. If you have, I think uh, it will be worth watching again. Let's, let's take a watch. And finally, we take you to Nashville, Tennessee, and the NASCAR Nationwide Series race where Pastor Joe Nelms delivers one of the most unusual pre-race prayers you will ever hear. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for all your blessings. You said in all things give thanks. So we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before us. Thank you for the Dodges and the Toyotas. Thank you for the Fords. And most of all, we thank you for Roush and Yates partnering to give us the power that we see before us tonight. Thank you for GM Performance Technology and the RO7 engines. Thank you for Sunoco Racing Fuel and Goodyear tires that bring performance and power to the track. Lord, I want to thank you for my smoking hot wife tonight, Lisa. My two children, Eli and Emma, or as we like to call them, the little E's. Lord, I pray a blessed drivers and use them tonight. May they put on a performance. 
that's one way to pray, I suppose. So, <laughs> there are all sorts of things about that video to laugh at, right? Um, it's hilarious. It, it, it's, it's hilarious, but, but the reason I show it uh, is because I actually think that it's also revealing. And, and what I mean by that is that I think this guy, this pastor's prayer, reveals a tendency that, if we're honest, is true in our own hearts. And because it's true in our own hearts, it comes out in the way that we live, live our lives. And that tendency is this. A tendency to take God a little too casually sometimes. See, sometimes I think that we diminish. We make light of God. We're careless with our attitude about Him. Now, let me just say, for the record, I, I don't know if there's an, anything, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong uh, with the things that he was praying for or giving thanks for. I mean, after all, God does say to give thanks for the things that he gives us in our lives. So I suppose, you know, there are good things about praying for cars. Um, but the larger issue for me is, is the flippancy with which it seems like he has towards God. You see, maybe I'm just crotchety a little bit, or maybe it was the boogity, 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 amen. I don't really know. But here's what I do know. What I do know is that if we really knew who God was, if we could somehow see God in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, if we could stand before him, the one in whom all worship and honor and glory and praise is due if we really grasp the depths of God's majesty, of his power, of his authority. We would never treat that God casually. We wouldn't disregard him. We wouldn't treat him flippantly. You see, Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it's the right response to knowing who God is. But what does that phrase actually mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? I wish I had more time to talk about it because it's a phrase that we see all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. But in short, fear of the Lord does not mean to be afraid of God. You see, fear in this case isn't the same thing as being scared. Rather, when the Bible uses the word fear with reference to the Lord, most of the time... It's doing so to convey a sense of reverence, a sense of honor, a sense of awe before a holy and just and powerful and majestic God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had, um, have you ever had an experience where you're, where you're like standing before something and it's kind of like breathtaking? Right? Um, think of like Niagara Falls. Right? Even if you've never been to Niagara Falls, you've seen pictures. And from pictures, you can tell how unbelievable it is. And yet we know that the power and the force of the water would crush us if we got too close. I remember when I was a little kid uh, seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. You know, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know there's nothing quite as breathtaking as looking out over the canyon, seeing the vastness of what it is. 
But I also remember as a little kid, my parents saying not to get too close to the edge because it's dangerous. See, that sense of awe that we have before Niagara Falls, before the Grand Canyon, when the Bible is talking about the fear of the Lord, it's trying to cultivate the same sense of amazement, the same sense of wonder and reverence and awe before God. That's the right response, Proverbs says, to knowing who God is. Only a fool, Proverbs says, would respond differently. Which raises a question. How do we respond to God? What's your attitude towards Him? Is it easy for you to treat God casually? Is it easy for you to sometimes be flippant with Him? Or does your knowledge and understanding of who He is cause you to respond with amazement and wonder at your Maker? You see, here's why I'm asking that. When we treat God casually, and believe me, I'm just as guilty of this as anyone because I do this all the time. When we treat God casually, we miss who he really is. And if we miss who God is, then we can't have a real relationship with him. And apart from a relationship with God, we can't grow in biblical wisdom. See, the first step that a wise person makes, the first step to having a successful life, the first step in learning how to live well in this world is knowing the Lord. And when I say no, I'm not simply meaning knowing things about God. Right? There's a significant difference between knowing things about God and actually knowing God personally. Proverbs tells us that success in life begins with our relationship with God. Second question. If a successful life begins with a relationship with God, then how do we live well? How do we live well? Now, to a certain extent, that's the question that that we're going to unpack kind of the rest of the semester. It's it's the question that we're going to wrestle with for the next eight, nine weeks. But suffice it to say for now, let, let me shortly summarize. Living well means following God's commands. How do we live well? By following God's commands. Proverbs 14, 2. Whoever fears the Lord walks uprightly, but those who despise him are devious in their ways. What's that phrase again? Fears the Lord. Whoever fears the Lord walks uprightly, but those who despise him are devious in their ways. In other words, true trust in God, true faith in God, a real relationship with God should manifest itself in our obedience to him. The second to the last book, uh, verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's another wisdom book in the Old Testament. It says this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. What's our duty? Well, our duty, according to Ecclesiastes, is to know God, to fear him, and to follow his commands. See, I know sometimes that it feels like God's commands are are just a list of rules 
right? They, they seem kind of arbitrary. They seem outdated. They seem irrelevant for us. I know sometimes it feels like God is actually just in the business of sucking the fun out of life. I, I, I know that. I've been there. I, I've said that. I know sometimes when you guys walk past Speaker Circle and you hear people screaming at you and saying, you're going to hell because you drink. You're going to hell because you gossip. You're going to hell because you hook up. You're going to hell because you're a hypocrite. That it makes God out to be this cold, angry, distant jerk of a God. You see, that nothing could be further from the truth. God isn't cold. God isn't angry towards us. God wants a relationship with us. And he wants a relationship with us because he's the one who created us. And these commands that he's given us, he gives them to us because he knows what's best for us. You see, I know that it's counterintuitive, but our obedience to God is actually what brings us the most satisfaction in life. Because our obedience to him, in our obedience to him, we live as the way we were created to live. And so God's commands, they're not arbitrary rules. They're an expression of who he is. They're an expression of his own character. They're an expression of what he cares about. Human beings are made in the image of God. They're made, we're made for God and therefore... We become fully human when we live according to the way he created us, to his instruction. And so that's why Moses, standing before the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, he says this. He says in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. How do we live well in the world according to God? By fearing him? By walking in obedience? By loving him? By serving Him, by keeping His commands. Why? Well, because it's for our good. See, God says obedience to Him is for the benefit of His people in the end. How we feel about God's commands is really just an index of how we feel about God. For example, if we dislike what God says, what does that tell us about what we think of God? If we think God's commands are too rigid, what does that say that we think about who he is? If we treat God's commands as an exam to be passed or as a means of earning his favor, what does that say about what we think about who that God really is? You see, I think that it tells us that we might not really know who God is at all. Which is why we need to get to know him. We need to learn to cultivate a relationship with him. And so how do we do that? Well, some of us need to ask God, maybe all of us need to ask God to teach us his ways. 
Maybe you're here tonight and you're relatively new to Christianity. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Maybe you're not new, but you've just kind of been doing things and not really engaging with your heart. It's okay for us all to ask God to help us to get to know him. In fact, we need to do that. It's a good thing. You see, even King David, one of Israel's greatest kings, a man the New Testament describes as a man after God's own heart, even King David needed guidance and wisdom in the ways of God. Look at what he says in Psalm 25. He says, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. You see, in order to live well, we need God to teach us his ways. Uh, others of us, for others of us, living well means asking God to change our hearts. Asking God to change our hearts because we know that our hearts are conflicted. We know that sometimes we want wrong things. And so again, Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. You see, God wants our undivided commitment to him. He wants our greatest longing in life to be for him because he knows it's for our good. So to summarize, a successful life begins with our relationship with God. And living well means following God's command. Last question. What is the goal of a successful life? What is it that we're all working towards? Is it some of the things that we mentioned earlier? Some big impact on the world? Having influence in people's lives? Is it prosperity? Is it being respected and admired? Maybe having power? Success being a somebody? You see, I get it. I struggle with just about every single one of those things that I just said. But according to the Bible, not a single one of those things is what success really is. Not a single one of those things is what living well is all about. No, a successful life is a deeper relationship with God. A successful life is having a deeper relationship with God. I'll close by um, sharing another story. Yasuko Namba, I think that's how you pronounce her name, uh, was a 46-year-old Japanese FedEx employee that had a passion for mountain climbing. But she didn't just have a passion for climbing. She was actually really experienced, really accomplished. She had summited seven of the largest mountains in the world. And when she turned 46, she said, that wasn't enough. There was one mountain I still have to conquer. One goal that I still need to attain. One summit I still needed to reach. And that was Mount Everest the highest point in the world. And so after months of gathering a team and preparing and training, Namba and her crew set out on the expedition of her life. 
People that were a part of that team said that she was so completely focused on the top of Mount Everest, it was almost as if she was in a trance. She pushed extremely hard. She jostled her way past other climbers on the climb. She wanted to get to the top so badly. And soon enough, she did. She made it to the top. She accomplished her goal. And, and actually, kind of interestingly, at the time, she was the oldest person to ever do it. 46 years old. But there was a problem. You see, later on the same day, later that afternoon, the afternoon that they summited Mount Everest, her team got caught in a blizzard just as they were coming down from the mountain. Just as they had descended below the summit, icy winds, terrible conditions envelops the team. And Yasuka Nambo succumbed to exhaustion and she eventually froze to death. It's a tragic ending to an incredible story. She died just below the goal that she had set for herself. You see, but experts actually said it didn't have to end this way. It didn't have to end this way. She probably actually would have survived had she not made one tragic mistake. And that mistake was that she had adopted the wrong goal. You see, what was her goal? Her goal was to get to the top of Everest. She wanted to stand on top of the highest point of the world as all of Japan cheered for her. See, but most advanced climbers know that the goal of climbing a mountain is not to get to the top. It's not to reach the summit. The goal of climbing a mountain is to get back down. To get back down. So as the music team comes up, I'll stop here. What's your goal in life? Think about it. What's your goal? See, Asuko had the wrong goal going up that mountain. And, and the big question for all of us, the big question for all of us as we live our lives is, do we have the right goal? You see, do we think success is one thing when according to the Bible it's something different? Do we have our sights set on some fixed point along the journey? Or are we prepared to come back down that mountain? To live and to finish our lives well. You see, if you want a successful life, if you want to live well in God's world, God says to spend your life investing in the most important thing, your relationship with Him. You see, worldly success isn't real success. Real success is a life growing deeper with Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of true wisdom. Jesus is the one in whom all treasure of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Worldly success, that, that pales in comparison to having a relationship with Jesus. So let me ask that question that I asked at the beginning one more time. How do you want to be remembered at the end of your life? How do you want to be remembered at the end of your life? How about as someone who knew Jesus? How about as someone that followed Jesus? How about as someone who obeyed Jesus 
faithfully and when you don't, someone who turns in repentance quickly. You see, that's what living well is all about. It might not meet the world's standard of success, but it's the kind of life that you and I were created to have. And it's the kind of life that all of our hearts are longing for. Amen.